Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Where can you get the best medical information anytime and anywhere? Right here on The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. This podcast strives to bring the top medical experts to your favorite listening devices or on YouTube to watch in the comfort of your own home. A disclaimer, this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended as personal medical advice. For that, please consult with your trusted healthcare professional. Today's topic is clearing the mist behind the mystery of brain fog and COVID-19 and other viral syndromes. You know, there was a time not too long ago that if a patient went to their physician and said they were experiencing brain fog, I would say there was a high probability that the doctor would start to roll his eyes as if saying, hmm, what does that even mean? And uh, well, COVID-19 changed all of that. A frightening statistic, 16 million people in the US have been diagnosed with long haul COVID and between two and 4 million are unable to work due to these devastating long-term effects, a lot of it affecting the brain. My guest today is Dr. Avindra Nath. He's a senior scientist and a leading expert from the NIH on post-viral neurological syndromes. In fact, for years, he's led research trying to understand how ME-CSF, chronic fatigue syndrome, and HIV um, are associated with brain fog. And now Dr. Nath is leading the way in understanding how COVID-19 affects the brain and hopefully how we're going to have some treatments for it. So I'm really pleased to welcome Dr. Avindra Nath to the podcast. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on your podcast. Uh, and look forward to our discussion. And you certainly have found a very important topic uh, near and dear to us, as well as millions of people yeah. um, in this country who are concerned about this. You know, Dr. Nath, I'm just interested um, since you've been working on this a long time and obviously your credentials and the prestige you bring to this area and as a neurologist and a scientist, how do you like clinically define brain fog? Cause as I mentioned in the introduction, I mean, doctors used to go bananas when I would talk to them saying the patient said he has got brain fog. I don't know. What are they even talking about? And of course in medicine and science, we like to try to be as scientific as we can when it's possible. So, how do you define it? Is it about not being able to find words? Is it short-term versus long-term memory? I mean, what, what, you know, when you're evaluating patients, I'm sure to study them and you want to see if they fit the criteria, what are you looking at? Yeah. It's interesting. I, I like the way you preface this, you know? Uh, so now you only go downhill from here. So that is the exact answer to uh, my understanding of brain fog is I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! <laughs> so, uh, so the term brain fog is, as you know, has been coined by patients, right? And right. What they really mean is that uh, they have some difficulty with cognition, and okay, as you know, there are many different domains of cognition. So you have the executive domain, you have the memory, you have the attention, you have the concentration, mm -hmm. and um, and then your short-term memory, your long-term memory. So there are many different aspects to it. Patients often have difficulty trying to understand what aspect of their cognition is affected. So any of these things affected, they just say, you know, I just can't really think properly or, or do things properly, and maybe I have brain fog. So uh, our job then is to really try and dig deeper into it as to what do they really mean from it. And when we 
look at these patients um, with long COVID or complaining of brain fog, we actually find a variety of different types of abnormalities. Um, so I can give you multiple examples. Well, one, one thing I want to ask you, I mean, one of the things they've gotten a little bit better at, you know, in dealing with the elderly, when we're talking about, you know, Alzheimer's, dementia, mm-hmm. I mean, there are certain recall tests, you know, that they put the patients through, because some of these things can be very subtle, you know, you could, I know this, unfortunately, with a family member, they can be, you know, talking to very, what appears to be normal, you wouldn't notice, but then all yeah. of a sudden, yeah. Yeah. you know, they start, you know, there's this term called confabulation, which I'm sure you're familiar with, yes, where they yes. just start substituting something in, which yes. is totally not true. Yes. Uh, because that's somehow the brain is working that way. You know, and in COVID, as you know, we're dealing with, I mean, people of all ranges, but many young, highly functional people. Oh, yeah. So, again, I was just wondering how you try to, because, again, to see the improvement, you have to know a little yeah. bit, like, what's the deficit? Yes, yes. So you're absolutely right. So these patients don't have confabulation, and it's not just strictly a memory problem like you see in Alzheimer's. So in fact, a number of these patients may not be even aware of the fact that they have cognitive difficulties. They only realize, so about 20%, you know, roughly, these are rough numbers, but 20% people with long COVID complain of cognitive difficulties. You go and examine them with uh, neurocognitive batteries, you find that maybe 30 to 40% actually have it. Some of them are not even aware of the problems. And uh, so, and they become, sometimes they become aware only when they are challenged. So I'll give you an example of a woman uh, I saw, she uh, thought she recovered from COVID and she was fine. And then she goes to her job where she had to take minutes uh, of a very large meeting that she uh, and complex meeting that she used to be able to do easily. And she very quickly figured out she can't do it. She couldn't multitask any longer. Yeah? Mm-hmm. That's when she showed up uh, to see us because she that's she, her realization came only when really put to uh, uh, some complicated tasks. Right. So you're absolutely right. That the only way to do that is through and define it carefully is through these neurocognitive batteries. So we do like three hour long neurocognitive batteries look at every single domain that is involved in cognition, and then you can quantify these things and put a number on it. So now if you treat them or you want to follow patients over a period of time, you can do them repeatedly. There is something called practice effect, so you can't use the exact same test every time mm-hmm. because you get better by doing sure. it. They start to, yeah. So we substitute different kinds of tests for each of the different domains. So that way you can check it. Does anything stand out to you? You know, I was reading the article where I found out about you in Scientific American. It's one of my favorite, you know, uh, magazines. And it was really (laughs) frightening. This woman, Tara Gormley, who is a veterinarian, you know, maybe Uh maybe you know, because, you know, you mentioned you were quoted in the article. I mean, like she says, she goes, my life fell apart. I mean, she was a veterinarian, obviously very bright, and she just no longer could do her job. Yeah. And uh, so is there any, I'm just curious too, like, and I know, I know I'm, I'm like kind of pinning you down, but I know this is such a, a new area. Is there anything that really stands out? I mean, I'll just give you an example, like, cause we're going to get to it in the next area I want to speak about, but like, you know, one of the most dramatic things about COVID was the anosmia, not being able to smell. Yes. I mean, yeah. all of us, when we get a cold, we don't smell so great, but this was dramatic and people, yeah. as you are aware, were complaining of crazy kind of sensations, like smelling garbage and, I mean, horrendous things. I read articles about, you know, patients' reports. But again, just going back to the memory and this brain fog, was yeah, yeah. is there anything that's sort of like a little bit of a telltale 
thing or that's something that across all things you're seeing is like the most that, that would stand out? I think executive functioning is really mm. what stands out the most. It's not really memory. Uh, okay, so it's executive function. That's an important point impact. because, right, because that, again, like as you're saying, people wouldn't notice until they were thrown into yes. their job situation where us as doctors and almost anybody in a job that involves a lot of thinking, <laughs> you get tested. Yes. Okay. Let me ask you about the nose brain pathway. You know, my background's in immunology, infectious disease and allergy. So, oh. you know, I always, uh, I always used to tease my patients and tell them, you know, until you have a problem with allergies or cold, you know, people think of the nose as a cosmetic organ. Oh, is my nose <laughs> look good, you know, but you know, all of a sudden you can't breathe, then you can't taste and it's a whole thing. But you know, the one thing I never appreciated till now, and I, I think more about it is this pathway of the nose to the brain. Yeah. And maybe you could explain that a little bit too, because again, a lot of us have gotten common colds over the years and we get congested, but we don't have problems hopefully with executive function for long-term or issues with our brain. So yeah. what is it about COVID and maybe some of the other viruses you've studied in the past too, that maybe you could describe to the listeners this, this pathway. How do you know? Because again, we don't tend to think of our nose connected to our brains, but there is a pathway there. <laughs> So you're absolutely right. There are these olfactory nerves, and the nerves are the ones that uh, through which you smell. And the only way you can sense, sense that smell is that nerve has to go from the nose into the brain, right? Mm -hmm. So that is your pathway. The question is, can the virus really go up that pathway or not? And that remains um, still not fully understood, um, although it seems quite unlikely. And I'll give you a couple things. There are things that can go from the nose to the brain. So, for example, you know, um, people in anyway, people stuff started giving medications. For example, midazolam is given intranasally to stop a seizure. Right? Interesting, right? Mm -hmm. uh, people are giving intranasal insulin. Uh, as they right, oh, right. I mean, I think that's. Right? I'm going to do a podcast that, in a few weeks. There's like there's this then, whole right pathway of uh, yeah. medications being given intranasally. Right. Mm -hmm. That's right. And people snort cocaine and all kinds of other things. Right. So right. they go in. Right. And so, but viruses is a different matter. Now, if viruses had easy access to the brain and every time we catch a cold, I mean, the human race would be extinct. Right. right? You just <laughs> die in childhood. Right? right. So there is a, there's something called the cribriform plate, which is this bony plate. It's cribriform because it's got these perforations and it's sitting right above your nose and beneath your, your frontal part of your brain. Right. And that's where these nerves and blood vessels are going in and out. But uh, they also have a way of being able to prevent things from going in because you don't want these viruses going in that easily. Right. right. That blood brain barrier, everything. I mean, yeah, it's so obviously... you have a cribriform barrier there too. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. And a mucosal barrier there. So it turns out that originally we thought that it was simple as this the coronavirus is infecting the nerves and it's going up the nerves into the brain right. and it explain a lot of things, you know. Uh, but um, we, it later we found out that really what it infects is not the nerves, but these are the support cells around support the nerves called sustenkular mm -hmm. cells. Mm -hmm. And now that produces, a, you know, inflammation in the nose. And through that inflammation, it can compress the nerve. And that's how you lose your smell. Mm. So the olfactory so, nerve, which we use for smelling, is that you're saying the the virus comes in, obviously infects this inflammation because the body's immune system's trying to fight this yeah. off, yeah. but in the process 
you know, more than any other viruses that we're kind of familiar with, it destroys or injures those supportive cells, mm -hmm. as you're saying. Yeah, the, ner then, the nerve itself. Yeah. And then what? The pathway uh, into the into the so the smell brain. now no longer can travel along the nerve into your brain for you yeah. to smell it and that's why a lot of people will recover because as the swelling goes down then the nerve starts functioning again but sometimes the nerve can be traumatized the swelling is so much that it just gets traumatized and then you may not recover smell or if you do you can get these very parosmias is what they call it mm. you smell something and it smells like something totally different you know, because and they rewire themselves in the wrong pathway. Mm -hmm. I'm going to jump around for a second, though, because I, I thought about this, too, again. You know, unfortunately, like with Alzheimer's and dementia, you know, and some of the people I've interviewed about that, you know, sometimes the, uh, the what we call the prodrome, as you're familiar with, the, you know, the precursor yeah. can sometimes be loss of smell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was just wondering, is there something that we still don't understand how smell is maybe a lot more important to our brain function and cognition than we even realize? Is that? No, I think you're absolutely right. Um, yeah. So if you look at lower animals, for example, dogs and others, I mean, to them, smell is even more important than sight. Yeah. Right, you know? right. So we have evolved to use other senses more than our smell, but it still plays a very important role mm -hmm. in brain function. Okay, let's talk about inflammation and neuroinflammation. And this is your roundhouse. You are the you know one of the world's experts. Um, you know, and they mentioned the, again that Scientific American article about the brain and long COVID and this persistent immune inflammation, which yeah. they're saying may be the key to understanding this brain fog and cognition issues. So I wanted to ask you, you know, and this comes up a lot in my practice because I deal a lot with chronic fatigue patients who, again, we still are working in the dark, whether it, you know, it's due to some type of chronic inflammation from a virus. Um, that what are the basic inflammation things that are going on. And also, because I, I think this is a big um, confusing point to doctors and patients, that whether there's really a persistent infection mm. or is it what I explain to patients, and I've interviewed some other experts like Amy Prohler, I don't know if you know her, she, um, yeah. Yeah, she's yeah, up yeah, in Massachusetts, yeah. she's really terrific. We had a great uh, interview a couple, like a year or two ago, that it's almost like the cells, and I try to describe this to the patients, that the cells have almost been like almost been painted with a marker that saying that there's still inflammation that there's still the virus there even it could be like we as we know rna but it's not but the body's still in overdrive and i think you even mentioned this that you think i you know against this whole thing is it inflammation is it autoimmunity so i, I know i'm throwing out a lot of stuff but i'm just yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. trying to grapple with sure. is it that this persistent infection, which I doubt, but I want to hear your thoughts, or is it this persistent inflammation because the body, something has been changed and the body it thinks sees it as a, a foreign? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So you're absolutely right. There is persistent inflammation. The question is what is really driving it, right? And if there was persistent infection, you know, there's no evidence of transmission of COVID right, from right, right. these patients, right? I mean, there's no, they're allowed to, uh, donate blood. There's no evidence oh, wow. that COVID right. is being spread right. through blood uh, right. transfusions or through organ donation or anything like that. So if there was persistent virus, you'd start getting all these modes of transmission that don't really occur, right? So so I don't think there's persistent virus. Now, is it possible that there's persistent antigen sitting around? Yeah. I mean, explain, that, explain that to the listeners, because again, I, I, that's what I was trying to say, like that when you so when you say this persistent antigen again for the listeners, meaning that's like the marker, you know, that 
that the virus is it's still in town, right? I mean, so are, 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 you, are you sort of not saying, the whole virus? No, yeah, <laughs> not the whole. No, but again, the way I'm trying to picture it again, um, you know, I fortunately studied some immunology. Yeah. That it's like the cells internalize a virus, as you know, yes. and then pops up a receptor or marker on their cell surface, yes. right? So when the when the immune system is kind of scooting by these cells, saying, yeah. "Ooh, this this guy's still a problem. We better go after him." Yeah. And uh, and that creates this chronic inflammation. And if somehow cause we're, we're going to get to the, the good part later for the listeners, I don't like to keep them hanging. Like <laughs> if you can figure out somehow to block that, um, yes, that marker. That's what I'm going to call it, marker, so that the body just settles down. And says, hey, you know, it's almost like again with allergies. You know, it's like when the, you know pollen shouldn't be so pathologic to patients, but it can make people really miserable. And if their body just has a way of like not, you know, again, when sometimes, you know, people are given cortisone, for example, reduces all that inflammation, and they feel fine, you know, yeah. so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. So sometimes we get hung up on trying to find out what is it that's really causing the inflammation, but sometimes it may not really matter. What really matters is what type of inflammation is taking place and then try to calm that down, you know, and you can help patients. So you're absolutely right. And so, you know, we and others have looked to see what parts of the immune system get activated uh, we've looked in brain, we've looked in spinal fluid, and it appears to us that one thing you do not see is T-cell activation. You do not? We don't that, find T-cell activation in the oh, brain or in the spinal fluid. Very right? interesting. But what I mean, we do find is macrophage activation, and in some it. subset of individuals, we find antibody-producing B-cells. Okay, I want to stop on that too. That's really important, again, for the listeners, because it can't be just my entertainment here, enjoying <laughs> your excellent uh, explanations. So just for the listeners, um, and this is really important, something in our blood cells called um, monocytes, you know, they're all part of the white blood cell system, and macrophages when they move into tissues. I like to make the example, they're the Pac-Man of, yeah. of the immune system. They just gobble up stuff. They don't have a memory. They're not like the thinking guys. But if they see something that looks foreign or bad, you know, if people are old enough to remember Pac-Man, these little guys go around and just gobble it up. So, okay, so that, yeah, that is important to know. And again, we've been hearing a lot about that because I guess macrophages, they go up and clean up, but they don't they also have, again, also markers on their yeah, cells yeah. that, you know, set off the, because they, we were going to get to, they secrete, you know, what I call immune hormones, cytokines. When, again, when I'm trying to explain to patients, because they're trying to understand what is a cytokine, you know, well, you know, the same way people could relate to having thyroid hormone and cortisone hormones, female hormones, the cytokines are kind of the hormones of the immune system cells. So I want to ask you, Now I was doing some work for a while with Dr. Bruce Patterson. I don't know if you're familiar oh, with yeah, this. Yeah, I know. yeah, Bruce was out in, uh, he was out at Stanford for a while. Now he has his own company. And what he was doing, um, I was, again, I was a little bit disappointed. I was really hoping for better results. But he, again, that he had supposedly come up with this algorithm based on looking at monocyte um, patterns and markers, but also looking at again what's called cytokines and i'm just going to throw these names out of listeners just to bear with us i mean things like tnf alpha il6 vegf vegf you know again these tests that are not typically done by you know routine doctors you know they you know they most doctors will do what's called a normal cbc where you know you get the white count but you won't see anything in covid or long-haul covid patients so i guess what i want to ask you is Again, from your view, you know, viewpoint versus Dr. Patterson's, are those markers helpful? 
And does it matter where they are? I mean, again, do they tip you up? If you see someone has, I know, again, Dr. Patterson, because I've worked with him a little bit, you know, when he's seeing this tumor necrosis factor alpha, which is high also like in rheumatoid arthritis patients or IL-6, you know, he's like, okay, yeah, these people have to be treated. There's ongoing inflammation. So. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So there's still research tools, at least in the spinal fluid, you know, they're not, we don't have standards available. It's not like getting your hemoglobin and you say, okay, well, here's the range. Everybody does it. You get the same reading. Mm. doesn't matter whether you get it in California or in Florida. These things are still not that well standardized. Mm. So they're not available for routine testing. But in a research lab or I mean, you look at you know, groups of patients and you're studying them, it is clear that you have evidence of cytokines that are elevated and those ones that are predominantly coming from macrophages. So IL-6, uh, TNF, you already mentioned, um, you know, neopterin. Neopterin is really a good one to measure. Which one is that? Neopterin. I just wasn't familiar with that one. I never heard oh, of that before. Yeah. And yeah. is this in the blood? This is You can get this from a blood so, draw? Well, or we, is so, it... I mean, you can measure them in blood, but we usually do them in spinal fluid because we're interested mm. in brain fog. Right. And so you have a better chance of getting them in the, in the spinal fluid. Yeah, that makes sense. But, yeah. Um, what about also any uh, other, like even radiological testing, does MRI or functional MRI, do any of oh, these yeah. things give us more information than what we routinely would get? Yes, uh, they definitely. Now, it turns out that most patients with long COVID, if you just do a routine structural MRI scan, don't really see much. You don't, right. Mm -hmm. uh, functional MRI people have done and PET scan has been done and they do show abnormalities. And, and that's because, again, I want to like kind of define for the listeners and even myself, because the PET scan, from what I remember, it basically shows like um, circulation flow and it shows like through different colors. In, and is that is that like, are you seeing any areas where there's like what we call hypoperfusion, yes. like where there's less circulation going? Like, like how, as we would with the heart. I mean, like there are now PET scans and things like that too for the heart you know, to, to see where an artery might not be getting, you know, enough. Yeah, you can do blood. perfusion scans. But the other thing you can do is you can do metabolic scans. So, for example, you can take radioactive glucose. Okay? Mm -hmm. That's the most common PET scan. Mm -hmm. And you give it to a patient. Now you can see areas that, that are very highly active. They'll take up a lot of glucose. And the others are not. So we know what a normal glucose. And the brain takes the most glucose than any other. That's right. That's a really good point. So that, that right. helps. Oh, so this metabolic, what's it called? The metabolic MRI? Yeah, it's a metabolic. Is that only yeah, in research exactly. or can people get that? No, even? no, you can get it done. Yeah, that's, so the fluorodeoxyglucose scan, that's what it's really called, it's full term, is uh, fluoro means that it's got a fluorine on it. Right. And deoxy is where it's sitting on the glucose. Uh -huh. And the reason you put fluorine is because you can put a fluorine 18, which is radioactive. Right. And so then the, the scanner measures the amount of radioactivity mm -hmm. and then it takes the radioactivity and just converts it into a color scale. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh yeah. It's nice. When you look at these pictures, they're beautiful. You can really yeah. see the, you know, it's like so artwork, the hot yeah. colors indicates that there is more brain activity there. And mm -hmm. that's nice. so now you can look at the map of the brain and see where there's more activity. Usually when you have a lot of neurons, you'll see more activity. Where you see more white matter, you see less activity. And uh, so you can compare that between a healthy individual and those with long COVID. And in general, you will see that there's decreased glucose activity uh, uptake within patients with long COVID. And there's certain areas of the brain, particularly at the base of the brain, where there tends to be um, less uptake and long COVID patients compared to um, 
controls. So that's what fluorodiagnostic glucose. Now you can take other kinds of li radioactive ligands and do PET scan also. So a research tool is to look at microglial cell activation. Microglia are these macrophage-like cells, but they're present in the brain. And usually if there's any kind of insult in the brain, they are the ones that get activated right. very quickly. Yeah, they're the cleanup cells, right? So mm -hmm. people have developed uh, radioactive ligands that will bind to just those cells. Mm -hmm. And um, so when you look at that in long COVID, at least in small numbers of patients that have been published so far, it appears that there's increased activity in the brain. So when the glucose is low, the microglial cell activation is large, mm -hmm. right? And that suggests to you that there's some kind of inflammation taking place in the brain and some kind of neural injury. Do you think also, because the brain, as you know, is like a, basically a neural network, Mm. And you think it's all about the interconnectedness and with yes. synapse and everything. That's what makes it so complex yes. that this problem with the, with the executive function, the brain fog, whatever we're called, is that, is that, yeah, that the circuits are not really functioning well, or is yeah. it sometimes just so localized, you know, like, like, for example, again, you know, in your neurology background, like when people have like, just for example, Parkinson's, even though yeah. we, we did a podcast on Parkinson's a few weeks ago, it was fascinating about how the gut could be potentially involved. But, yes. you know, we do know that it's the, um, the basal ganglia. I mean, that yeah. seems to be like the key area where there's that deficiency of dopamine. Um, again, do you think that issues with, again, because we're going to get to a couple other areas of other viruses, not just um, COVID, that it's that a certain area might be getting destroyed or depleted, or is it that the overall networking of the neurons, you know, are... So, so you're absolutely right. You know, it used to be that uh, you know, at least in my days and earlier days, we always thought about the brain as very concrete areas. You know, you mm -hmm. damage this area and you'll get this kind of symptom. You damage right. that area, you're going to get this kind of symptom. Right, right. That's neurology, now, right? Yeah. <laughs> neurology before MRIs, right? Yeah, that's you right. have to really examine them carefully <laughs> and find out where the lesion is. That's what made yeah, you guys so awesome. Right, yeah. <laughs> Now people have started thinking about it very differently. And just as you say, they started looking, thinking of the brain as circuits. So you damage a particular circuit and you come up with this kind of thing. And the circuit can involve a number of different areas. So the connectivity and circuits, it used to be that very hard to, we had no way of trying to study circuits in live individuals. Now there's a technique called functional MRI scan. Okay. And uh, that allows you to actually look at circuits. And so there's fascinating oh, wow. things coming out. Again, wow. it's still a research tool. It's not available for patients to go on because there's a lot of variability from patient to patient. Right. And so when you look at groups of patients, you can actually tell differences. Um, but in an individual patient, it's hard. But that allows you to look at connectivity. And there's no doubt that it's the functional MRI is really a very powerful tool mm. uh, to look and see how the brain is impacted in these diseases. Let me ask you something too. I was thinking about before we uh, the last couple of days when I was getting ready, all my questions in my mind. You know, I've taken care of, as I'm sure you have, but again, in my internal medicine days, working in the hospital, patients that had viral and bacterial meningitis. Now, again, in those days, I dealt with them acutely. You know, they came in, they were sick. We did a lumbar puncture, checked for, you know, checked for the different organisms. I wasn't, and then, you know, sometimes later on, I mean, you, again, you would see patients in the hospital or in my own practice. Oh, I had meningitis 10 years ago. I'm like, wow, you know, uh, 
but they never seem to have any long-term memory issues. Is that, am I wrong? Is that, it wasn't like this whole thing with COVID. It wasn't, you know, I mean, meningitis is really dangerous. Your whole brain is inflamed. Yeah. How is it, isn't it a little bit strange that these patients didn't have any issues with later on with cognition or executive function that I know of? I mean, I'm sure unless they had major damage. So you're absolutely right. I mean, a lot of patients with septic meningitis, for example, while, uh, you know, septic meningitis recovered completely. Um, bacterial meningitis, people can have long-term consequences. You know, those things can damage the brain and mm-hmm. you can have long-term consequences. Again, it depends on the meningitis. But the majority do not. I mean, would you say, I mean, you've probably seen cases over the years. It's not, it's not like this whole thing with long-haul COVID. It doesn't, I mean, maybe because, well, I mean, this bacteria yeah, and this yeah, virus. There could be differences. Yeah, there could be differences. Yeah. Um, you're probably right. Now, the thing is that we end up seeing... <laughs> The ones that do have the cognitive problems. Yeah, well, I didn't really I didn't think about that, right? You see the toughest cases. Yes, okay. <laughs> so my, my experience is a little bit different. Okay, all right. So it's a little bit skewed. Okay, so all right, I better, you know, I've, I've been fortunate. Let me ask you too, I mean, again, as I mentioned, you know, for, for many years, and I, I tell you, it's the one thing I pray that comes good out of COVID, long-haul COVID, that all the research and the money that's going in to understand about these post-viral syndromes, because, you know, for you know, probably over two decades, I've cared for chronic fatigue patients. And I've tried to be extremely diligent and, and work as best I can in what I call working in the dark, since we don't know what the cause is. I know from the NIH from many years ago, I think it was Dr. Steven Strauss, they were yeah. very oh, busy yeah. with Epstein-Barr being potentially yes, 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 yes. to really turn out. Although, again, these things keep on resurfacing. Yeah. But I believe you've done some, some work. And I know you've done with HIV. What do you see with these other viruses again, causing the neuroinflammation? And how is it different from COVID, if it, if it is at all? So I think this area has been very understudied, okay? And the reason for that is the, you train as a virologist, you study viruses. Right. You train as a neurologist, you study the brain. Right. And the two shall not meet. Right. <laughs> well, that's how I used to, they used to say about the nervous system and the immune system. They're like two trains heading in different directions. It wasn't until the last probably decade or so that they said, you know what? There's some kind of connection, you know, Kevin Tracy, you may know I interviewed about two yeah. years ago. I mean, he, his work was phenomenal. I mean, realizing, hey, these guys, you know, yes. there's, uh, <laughs> there's more than meets the eye. So. so, but to me, it is absolutely fascinating. I think uh, we tend to compartmentalize, you know, various aspects of medicine. And I think that it, I know why we do it and yes, there's good yeah. reason to do it. But what it does is the body doesn't really care about these things, right? right? right. Yeah, it's... All right? A virus of the brain, our immune system, they're all interconnected yeah. and they're all doing their job all at the same time. And we need to be able to study them uh, together right. Um, right. under one umbrella. And viruses to me are extremely fascinating. I mean, you can, as you were talking about persistent viruses, there's certain viruses that will persist in the brain and can cause extreme damage. Measles, for example, causes SSPE, right? It just yeah. spreads through the brain, doesn't even leak out into the spinal fluid. But you look at the brain, it's, it's everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. You can have other, um, and like EBV, you mentioned that. Can yeah, what about Epstein Barr? What, 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 just in your thoughts about that, you know, has, you know, again, because so many people get exposed to, yeah, yeah. Epstein Barr mm-hmm. as mononucleosis in their yes. young adult years, and um, you know, then there's this whole issue when they get really sick with chronic fatigue, which probably other things can I, I've found can usually, sure. you know, it's like the perfect storm. A lot of other things oh, are going yeah. on, 
And even, I believe too, in COVID, people have been doing work showing yeah. Epstein-Barr gets sort of reactivated, yes, yes, yes. In, right, within COVID. It's a, it's a fascinating virus, absolutely fascinating virus. So it's been associated with a lot of stuff. Just as you said, for one thing, you know, about 90-some percent of the population gets infected with EBV by their, after their teenage years, right. right? So almost all of us have it. Right. Now, um, but it's reactivation can cause things. Infectious mononucleosis, you know, people get extremely tired and fatigued there. You mentioned, EB, uh, you know, chronic fatigue syndrome. People have shown its activation there. Uh, EBV can cause lymphomas. Yeah, so Hodgkin lymphomas, B cell lymphoma associated with it. In fact, in HIV infected patients, uh, if you have a CNS lymphoma, 100% of them are Epstein Barr virus positive. Wow. Right? So they well, can when you say cancer. positive, so you, so you believe a little bit like in those kind of cases that it's because the Epstein Barr has been reactivated and has induced yeah, the lymphomas? A, it lives in B cells. So if you can push the B cells to, uh, it pushes the B cells to activation, right? Ah. And if it, the activation can sometimes lead to proliferation. And if it leads to proliferation, it can cause cancer. If it just stays activated, it can cause other kinds of things. It mm. can produce autoantibodies or it can produce... What, what uh, is your marker that you look at? So is it is it the EBV? Um, what do they call it? The, um, it's, I mean, is it IgM or is it um, oh, a, the, the you actual... antibodies? Blood, yeah, no, well, the, the blood test, yeah, the... Uh, the the best marker for reactivation is it um, I think early antigen is that what it's called oh the uh, the EBV late antigen or early antigen yeah is that the ones that you know that yeah are, you can look for because it's so confusing that I, I mean I've looked at hundreds of these you know and yeah, so obviously everybody's cells, got everybody's got high well not everybody yeah. but a lot a lot of people have elevated uh, Epstein Barr what we call IgG. Yes. antibodies, which is our body's essentially immune, you know, memory. IgM, I get concerned, a little bit excited because I think, yeah. wow, you really do have, it's almost like hepatitis. You have a, yeah. a persistent inflammation going on here, a persistent yeah. infection, actually. Yeah. Um, I was just curious if there's any test that you guys look at that uh, says, wow, this is definitely, the EBV is activated yeah. again. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you can do PCR and look for viral activation. A lot of times we get a lot of false positives too. Mm-hmm. You know, so, and you know, you know, the neurology council service, you end up seeing these patients because now what happens is whenever you send off any kind of spinal fluid to the lab for viruses, they will test for EBV and a you know, whole panel of these things. And the EBV most often turns out to be positive. Okay? Mm-hmm. So you see a patient with cancer or, you know, whatever it is, and the EBV is positive. Mm-hmm. With any kind of other autoimmune disease, the EBV comes by positive. So the problem is that we all have EBV and it doesn't take much to reactivate it. Any inflammatory situation that gets reactivated. So it's like sitting dormant in the cells, kind of waiting to, yeah, just, uh, <laughs> to, join, to join the party. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so the challenge is that, is that reactivation clinically significant or not? Yeah. Or is it just and a marker that, is that not the body is answer. Yeah. I, I used to sometimes think about it. It's like, it's almost like a marker that the body's in a weakened state. Yeah. 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 Mm. Okay. By, um, by itself, yeah. it may or may not be driving the disease. Mm, interesting. Okay. Let's get to the treatment part. Uh, yeah. I found it very fascinating. I got really excited, actually, because you mentioned in, the, in that Scientific American article about uh, uh, intravenous gamma globulin. I'll, I'll tell afterwards. I'll explain. I, I give intramuscular gamma globulin, and I'll, and I'll tell you oh. my perspective why I do it a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm going to put you on the spot here. 
sure. <laughs> not in a bad way. Yeah, that's okay. God, God forbid you get a call from the White House because you're in yeah. Washington. Or, you know, you're close they to the <laughs> No, they don't have to call you. They'll call your assistant. They'll say yeah. we. They'll say we need Doctor Nath. We're God forbid the vice president got long haul <laughs> COVID and not working well, and she's next in line for the presidency, yeah. and we want him to evaluate her. Uh, and then, of course, please do some treatment, even if it's experimental. I mean, it's like, you know, look, President Trump got the first, what did he get? He got uh, the first, um, the- uh, He got the gamma globulin treatment. Yeah, he got the gamma globulin treatment before anybody, and he, he did yeah. pretty well. So anyway, I mean, I'm joking, but what, you know, for the, um, you know, for the VIP patients or whatever, you know, people, <laughs> what, and they come into you with long haul COVID. What would you suggest? I mean, I know obviously a lot of this is off label or whatever we want to call yeah. it, but would you tell a patient that maybe it's worth to try, you know, gamma globulin to reduce inflammation as we were talking about earlier? Okay, so there are two aspects to it. Number one is that as a physician, you should never treat VIPs any differently than you treat the regular patients. That's true, and, but it's not and true. <laughs> we do end up doing that sometimes in our practice, and that's and oftentimes we regret it because I know I can, 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 up, can come up back to haunt you. <laughs> you end up over treating them or yes. over investigating them. You end up doing more harm than good. Yeah? Okay. Uh, or you put them in this really special unit where nobody goes and visits them. <laughs> in the corner of the hospital. Okay. <laughs> so that's principle number one. Okay. The second thing is what you're saying. What you're really asking is, is empirical therapy, and uh, can one do empirical therapy in medicine even if you don't have established controlled clinical trials or not, right? Because ideally, if somebody does a controlled clinical study, then there's no problem. Everybody will prescribe it, and you're there. The question is, you have a person with a rare disease or something really novel, and you don't know how to treat them. You have some understanding of the disease. Can you try something empirical or not? And the answer is yes, you can. Okay. okay. If you have an FDA-approved drug, a physician can prescribe it. Right. Okay? So you can do empirical therapy, but when you do that, there are certain things. If there, if it's risky, and you go, then you need to get patient consent. Of course. Yeah. Okay. Uh, make sure they understand the pros and cons of it. They need to understand this is empirical therapy. You shouldn't pass that on to say, well, this is standard treatment. I'm just right, going to treat right. you and see what happens. Right. Okay. So with all that kind of understanding, you can do empirical therapy, but you collect that data and then you make that widely available to the community so that other people can benefit from it. Let's say right. you did the empirical therapy and it didn't go too well. Yeah. Right? Yeah, so share that. Yeah. then it's very important to share with everybody right. so somebody else doesn't do the same thing. Mm. You know, it's, it's interesting. I, I appreciate you saying that because, you know, again, you are obviously extremely well-known NIH researcher, you know, and under the umbrella of the government of two, you know, I am uh, in private clinical practice. I'm on the front lines in a lot of ways. And, you know, we have patients suffering and a lot of them can or don't want to wait a decade, you know, till double blind placebo control yes. studies come out to get their life back. And, yes. um, and I'll just tell you interesting what I was doing in the practice, uh, trying, you know, with these patients that again, we were getting some of the markers. Sometimes we you know, as, as I said, I was working with Dr. Patterson. Sometimes they had elevated cytokine levels. I was giving them what I've used for, uh, chronic fatigue patients, intramuscular gamma globulin. And, and just, I'm curious about your thoughts about this because 
what we did obviously with the intramuscular gamma globulin it's a much lower dose than the intravenous mm -hmm. but the purpose was different because again in my background actually my fellowship was in immunology and i dealt with some of the kids with immune deficiencies that needed full oh, replacement yeah. 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 we're not trying to really fully replace these patients immune system we're yeah. just trying to give them something to reduce Obviously. inflammation i mean we don't want to we want to avoid prednisone because being on that for a couple of weeks has a lot of you know problematic side effects but i've found the gamma globulin does not but it doesn't always work but it's nice if it did and so what, what are your thoughts about that approach i don't there's nothing wrong with that i yeah. think that's perfectly fine okay. i just collect the data as you're going along i try yes yeah. Yeah. yeah what about also uh, again i don't know if you've tried this, the medications you know whether it's the adderalls you know any other mm -hmm. medications or you know again obviously oh, even yeah. cognitive games like video games or puzzles yes. do any of these things help these patients so those things are actually very important. So here you mm. have well-tried treatments, which are the symptomatic treatments, right? Okay. So you have an attention deficit, you can try Adderall, any kind of stimulant for that reason. Uh, cognitive rehab, as you mentioned, that should definitely be done. Mm -hmm. We should look for uh, the, sometimes you unmask underlying conditions that the patient mm. may not be unaware of. We should look for those kinds of things, make sure okay. they don't have uh, some lupus or whatever, you know. Right. Uh, they weren't or diabetes, uh, you know, that's a common one that people miss uh, for a long mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, there's a lot of things you can do for patients with long COVID, even if you cannot give them the disease-modifying therapy or you're not sure of what to do. You can certainly improve their quality of life by uh, mm -hmm. treating the symptoms that they have. Okay. All right. The last, last area I want to ask you about, um, you know, one of the also devastating things with covid uh, seems to be what's called POTS, you know, the postural oh, yeah. orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've seen patients who, unfortunately, too, especially the early on infections, you know, this nurses and doctors and all kinds of patients, you know, where they just had the heart racing, their blood pressure drops, um, yeah. you know, chest pain. I mean, it's just, it's really horrible. Mm -hmm. And um, what would be, I don't know, again, if this is in your area, but like, what what would you try to do you think this is inflammation of the vagus nerve that these patients are getting this? I mean, um, or is it a more of a primary cardiac issue? Do, do we have a better understanding? Because, you know, obviously for POTS, there's different treatments. You know, they use beta blockers. Uh, I think I was just reading somewhere, maybe it was in the article about ivabridine, which is like a cardiac medication. Uh -huh. You know, the cardiologists are using it for POTS. Uh -huh. Um I don't know. You know, again, I know this, this, see, this is one of those areas too. It's like with yes. the cardiologists and the neurologists yes. and whoever should be involved, you know, because nobody, you know, really has a, a set way of, of treating this awful situation. So, so you're right. So there are two things involved here. One is you could have a primary heart problem that can manifest, can look like parts whereby you're heart rate and blood pressure start going haywire because your heart just cannot function properly. The rhythm of the heart is affected or it is the structure of the heart can be affected, okay? And we've seen both of those occur in, uh, uh, in patients with COVID. So I think whenever you have these kinds of issues, that's the first thing to go for. Make sure the heart is functioning properly. Mm -hmm. If you're convinced that the heart is functioning properly, there's nothing wrong with it. Then you start looking at the autonomic nervous system. The autonomic nervous system starts in the brain stem, mm -hmm. right in the brain. And then it goes down to the cord into the sympathetic ganglia a parasympathetic ganglia, they're present on the sides of your spinal cord there. Mm. And then they go and innervate the blood vessels and they maintain the tone of the blood vessels. So every time you stand or whatever you mm -hmm. do, 
you feel cold, they will, you know, monitor, uh, regulate the contractions of your blood vessels so that it goes to the appropriate areas and you maintain a proper um, heart rate and, and, and blood pressure, right? Mm-hmm. So if those, that autonomic nervous system gets impacted anywhere along that pathway, okay, it can cause this POTS-like syndrome. So there are many different ways of studying these things. And there are neurologists who study them. We have an expert here, David Goldstein at NIH, who is a world expert in the autonomic nervous system. So I learned a lot from him. And we brought in patients over here. He'll measure neurotransmitters. He will measure your blood pressure, you know, in different mm-hmm. positions and stuff like that. And, uh, and he's shown that, yes, you can find abnormalities in the autonomic nervous system in long parts patients. Sometimes you can even do a little skin biopsy and look at the hair follicles. These nerves mm-hmm. innervate the hair follicles, interestingly, because, uh, and then you can stain those for various markers of the autonomic nervous system. You know, for, oh, wow. And for an enzyme called tyrosine hydroxylase, for example. And so those things give you a really good handle on what is it that's causing the, uh, the problem. For example, diabetics, for example, they will get a peripheral neuropathy and the peripheral neuropathy can involve the autonomic fibers innervating the skin. Okay. Mm. So, uh, so you can study those kinds of things using these kinds of techniques. Yeah. Is there anything that you're aware of that, again, in COVID causing POTS, you know, versus other things that, you know, that cause it? Yeah, That's all these things have been described. So we have a paper coming out, uh, um, and I just saw the proofs yesterday. And there we looked at uh, the autonomic dysfunction in these uh, patients with COVID. We find a lot of it. If you look carefully, you'll find a lot of it. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And so there we showed that the neurotransmitters, uh, you can measure them in blood, you can find that they are abnormal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we think there's some central dysfunction, maybe some peripheral dysfunction too. So again, do you think possibly taming down the immune issue would help the yeah. POTS versus just cardiac meds or, you know, like, you know, there's, yeah. you know, like again with POTS, you know, just for our listeners, you know, sometimes it, they, they use beta blockers. Other times um, they're using, um, you know, aldosterone type of medications just to, you know, again, raise the, the what we call, you know, the uh, water retention in the blood, in the, uh, you know, in the in, intravascular areas, just to, you know, because some of these patients get like hypotensive, their blood pressure is so low, that's why they can't even stand up. So you're absolutely right. So both things should be tried. So in our clinical trial that we're doing with the intravenous immunoglobulin, we're going to monitor patients' parts um, like syndromes mm-hmm. and see if it makes any difference or not. But you're absolutely right. Otherwise, your traditional treatment for parts is these mineral corticoids uh, that you give. Uh, and you can also give them boluses of saline and and then people will use stockings, for example, so that the blood doesn't pool in the legs or an abdominal binder sometimes to prevent the blood from pooling in your abdomen. Um, so a number of things you can do to help. Have you, have you ever heard about, I'm trying to look into this too, about those vagal stimulators. There's oh, like some, yeah. Do they work? I mean, do they have a place in this? I mean, that's a, this is what Kevin Tracy's work was yeah. originally. It was very fascinating, but it was really more in treating immune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis. And it was very fascinating. 
But I just, I remember, um, and yeah, he was trying to work on, or there was a company called Pointset or something that yeah. was uh, that was trying to do these external applications, you know, because it was, we, I, I, if I'm correct, like, you know, in the jugular, uh, was it the jugular vein or artery, there's, yes. yeah, there's the different receptors that affect, you know, the blood pressure. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So these vagus nerve stimulators are actually very fascinating. They, and there's a whole body of literature as to how you stimulate the vagus nerve and it can impact the immune system. And even people even use it for preventing seizures. I mean, there's a lot of things that you can do with vagus nerve stimulation. Why? And there are companies making these kinds of things. Why it hasn't caught on much more? I'm not 100% sure. Maybe it's just mm. comfortable using it or something. I don't know. Mm. But I think doing a, it's non-invasive, so it seems very attractive you know right but uh, in the context of long COVID, i'd love to see somebody do a clinical trial mm. uh, on it and see what it actually does um mm. but yes it's a very attractive technique oh that's exciting to hear yeah because it sounds like you know it's just another way to help yeah. people with hopefully less side effects so dr nath I, I want to thank you so much for taking the time today to share your expertise and provide hope for patients who are, are battling this problem. And, uh, you know, the NIH is our, is our gem in the healthcare system. And, uh, you know, and of course, you know, making sure that the latest and best treatments get out there. Um, is there anywhere that any of the listeners can, uh, can go to the, would you recommend the NIH website if they yeah. have issues with this, that maybe they can get more, you know, more information to help themselves? Yes, absolutely. You can contact the NIH website or you can write to us directly. We're happy to. Uh, mm. uh, right. We have an office that handles a lot of these emails and such. So we'll, oh, that's great. No, I know. Sometimes everything. I know in immunology, sometimes the toughest, toughest cases like they had, I think at the NIH, like the, I've got the name of the branch, but it was like the um, undiagnosed diseases. undiagnosed diseases, yeah. right? Yeah. That has to be the, the toughest of the toughest, you know, but hey, people have to go somewhere. So to my listeners, if you've enjoyed this podcast and learned, please leave a review or subscribe to the podcast. We love getting the word out. I think we're doing a lot of good work here. So thank you. 